Good afternoon, and welcome to the official podcast of CallUponTheLord.com. My name's Corey Wigington, and this is episode 18. This week, we're going to be looking at week 18 of the great story. We're covering Daniel. Daniel is just a fabulous character in the Old Testament. And if you don't know anything about Daniel, well, you are in the right place, because we're going to cover a lot today. So I do encourage you, if you've not read the book of Daniel, go read the book of Daniel. It, it's full of just, it's prophecy, how to serve God, how to pray. There's all kinds of things in Daniel. I mean, you can just read it and study it for weeks and months and years and still not exhaust all the information that you should get out of that. So I'm very excited about Daniel today. I will note that... Gosh, it's been about a year ago with my small group. We went through a study that, that I led. Um, I did 14 weeks on the book of Daniel. I basically tried to do a, a chapter a week. Uh, some chapters I had to break down into two different sections. Um, our Bible study typically lasts between an hour and an hour and a half. So that's how long it took us to get through the book of Daniel. It was, it was about 14 weeks. I'm trying to cram everything that you should know about Daniel in one hour. So keep in mind, this is not going to be exhaustive. Um, I will do my best for you, though. Uh, another thing to keep in mind, and this goes pretty much for all of our biblical studies, different commentaries have different dates for things, depending on how they are looking at history, you know, who they assume different rulers are at different times. Um, different commentaries will say that different people were rulers at, at different dates. And because they date things differently, a lot of times between the commentaries, there's a couple years difference in the date that, you know, certain things happen. And when you're studying the book of Daniel, that becomes obvious as well because we talk about the exile from, from Judah down to Babylon, different times when the Babylonians attacked Judah. Uh, the dates get a little bit confusing. They're usually a couple years off between one another. So as I'm going through and I'm, I'm quoting these dates, loosely interpret that as, as being accurate. Uh, that is the best accuracy that I can get from a commentary. I'm not really a historian, so... I'm not going to go back and, and determine, you know, what king ruled whenever, and you know that's going to be an authoritative date. I know what I've read, I know what I've studied, and I know what the commentaries are telling me. So that's what I'm conveying to you, is the best scholarship that I can do. Uh, so with that being said, you should go out to my webpage, www.calluponthelord.com, grab your study guide for the week. That should be in the Bible study section under Corey Wigington, The Great Story, and then it'll be on week 18. So, uh, please go ahead and go do that. Uh, we're looking at a five-page study guide today. A lot of material to cover. And I'm already a little bit behind schedule and where I wanted to be, so hopefully we'll get through this. Excellent. Okay. Let's go ahead and get started here. <clears throat> so, for our introduction, where were we last week? We were basically talking about the last days of Judah, where Hezekiah was the king. He was a great king. 
Uh, he turned Israel around, tried to get them to serve God like they were supposed to, and but he really didn't have a lasting impression on Judah because when his son came to power, Manasseh, he basically reverted Judah back to the worship of foreign gods, idolatry, and they were basically in the same boat that they were before. When Josiah came to power, Josiah again tried to turn the nation around, but it wasn't enough. Uh, God had already prophesied that because of Manasseh's sin, Judah would be sent into exile. So we see here, during the days of Hezekiah, Isaiah had already prophesied. Now Isaiah prophesied in yeah, he lived from 739 B.C. to 686 B.C. It's about a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. He said, <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your ancestors have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who are born to you shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now that was during the days of Hezekiah when things were, well, Hezekiah was getting ready to turn things around in Israel, but Isaiah had already prophesied that a hundred years prior to the exile of Babylon. Now, depending on what you look at, there's something known as higher criticism when you're really getting into the scholarship of the, of the biblical text. Higher criticism looks at when certain things were written, uh, and whether they're actually prophecy or whether it's somebody looking back. Higher criticism says that the book of Isaiah wasn't really written until the people were already in Babylon. Um, I really don't accept that view. I accept that Isaiah was written previous to that, and that the words of Isaiah are accurate in that they are predicting the future. It wasn't just some scribe in Babylon saying, well, Isaiah might have said this, and we're going to be in captivity. No, I think Isaiah actually prophesied that. So, and the question, of course, is, you know, why are they in captivity? Well, they're in captivity because of what Manasseh did. But why 70 years? What, what's the point of the 70 years? Well, we find that in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. Let's go ahead and look at that real quick. Leviticus 25, 1 through 7 says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you, you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the what grows of, of itself in your harvest, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves. And for your hired worker and your sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land as it yields shall be for food. So, what does that say here? Leviticus, book of the law, says six years you'll work your fields, one year you'll have a Sabbath. On that seventh year there will be a Sabbath year. Well, that's what we're looking at here. Jeremiah prophesied that the 70 years of captivity were due to the people not keeping that Sabbath year. 
So the Lord is extracting 70 years of captivity for the people because they didn't let the land lay in rest for 70 years. Um, so basically, from the time the law was instituted, that was about 490 years. One year every seven years. So you divide that by seven, you end up with 70 years of Sabbath that they had not yet observed. So what was the purpose of the captivity? Captivity was to cure Israel of their idolatry, of their turning away from God, of their blatant sin. So the good thing is that after the captivity, Israel has never had a problem with idolatry or serving foreign gods again. So it did its job, though it was a very harsh way to go about doing it. The Babylonians ended up exerting control over Judah in 605 BC, and that's when they started their original exportation of the, of the people, the deportation, I guess. Um, Babylon attacked again in 597, and they attacked finally in 587, destroying Israel in 586. I have a little graph here for you. Uh, you can see there has, uh, well, there's quite a bit of information on here. Has Nebuchadnezzar, his reign from being 605 B.C. to six or 562. Uh, shows where Daniel's activities were, basically that, that whole time period here. Ezekiel's ministry in Babylon was from 593 to 570. Uh, shows where some of the kings of Israel are down in there. Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Um, talks about the... Uh, exportation of Jehoiachin in 597 uh, and then yeah right at the end 539 has Babylon falling to Cyrus the Persian so a lot of good information there again this is one of those things where the dates might be a little bit off in, as you're studying other material but this gives you a, a good time frame of, of reference here so alright as Paul Harvey would say, page two. Alright, I didn't do that with as much gusto as Paul Harvey did it, but uh, good enough, I suppose. Daniel and his friends. So Daniel. Daniel was a great prophet. Um, he went in 603 or 605 BC he was deported along with many of the other people in Israel uh, the they were the princes the people that didn't have a, a blemish on them they were you know kind of the the well-to-do people uh, they were exported down or deported down to uh, Babylon in order to be trained up as wise men people that would end up ruling uh, Israel, Judah, then ruling that whole section. Uh, the idea was that you would take people that were native to the land, that spoke the language, that knew the customs and everything, you'd bring them to Babylon, convert them to the Babylonian religion, get them used to all the customs in Babylon, then you'd send them back out to rule whatever section of land you wanted them to rule, then you would be certain that they are both loyal to you because you fed them and you made them powerful and everything, and that the people would respect them because, well, it's one of them. So that was the idea here. Um, four people that the book of Daniel really addresses are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Now we know those people as Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Babylonians changed the the names of, of these four people because it's kind of a brainwashing technique. And you'll see what I mean here in just a second. Now Daniel's name means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means uh, Bel, of course, is another name for Marduk, which is the god of the Babylonians. Um, also could mean protect the king. Hananiah, his name was changed to Shadrach. Well, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach means command of Aku. Uh, Aku was the moon god of the Babylonians. Mishael, his name means who is what God is. His name was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. And Azariah, his name means Yahweh has helped or will help. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nabo. And Nabo was the son of Baal, uh, I'm sorry, son of Bel, or Marduk, the god of vegetation. So you see, they, these men had very godly names that were really showing how uh, how they served the Lord, how they were, they were loyal, and you know, really godly names. Part of their brainwashing was to change their name to reflect these other foreign gods, so that every time someone would call them by their name, they would, you know, start thinking about this new god or, or you know what they were supposed to be doing. So, but it it really didn't work in the case of these four, as we'll see as we go about looking at this chapter. So, these four they were deported down to. Babylon, and they decided that they were going to change their diets to give them all of this food that was from the king's table to enrich them, basically, give them better food, better dress, and education. Now, it wasn't against Hebrew religion to learn about other things. It wasn't against their, their religion to get an education, to learn about what was going on in the world. So Daniel and his four friends, or three friends, didn't have a problem with that. What they had a problem with was the food that they were supposed to eat. Because in the Old Testament, they were still under dietary restrictions. So, you know, they were basically eating vegetables and water and, you know, whatever was, was kosher, blessed, uh, you know, blessed by the priest and was uh, okay for them to eat. One of the problems with what people of Babylon ate was they ate a lot of pork. And pork comes from pigs. It's an unclean food. Daniel and his friends couldn't eat that without violating the law of the Lord. So how does Daniel handle this? We have to look at Daniel 1, 8 through 13. And we see Daniel say... But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over him, Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel's suggestion was, for the next ten days, you know, we're down here, we haven't really eaten anything yet, but for the next ten days, give us just vegetables and water. And let everybody else eat whatever they want to eat. And just test us after those ten days. Now think about what's happened here. You're taking a bunch of Jews who have a very strict dietary law. You're putting them into a position where they're eating a bunch of food that they're not used to. A lot of rich food that they're not used to. Daniel and his friends stay on vegetables and water, which you know they are used to. After ten days, he wants the, the chief of the eunuchs to look at them and see how well they're doing. Well, what's happened during this time is the people that are eating this other food that they're not used to, they've obviously gotten sick, they look poorly, they're in terrible health, whereas Daniel and his friends, they're eating the food that they're used to. So they are prospering. They look much, much better than what the rest of the group looks. So how does Daniel deal with this? Keep in mind, Daniel is 15 years old at this time. He's just been captured, taken to a foreign country. His captor is telling him, you will eat this food. But Daniel's faith is already so strong that he says, no, I'm not going to do it. But I tell you what I will do. And he gives an alternative. Instead of just saying, no, I'm not going to do it, he says, this is what I can do that would still help you. The chief of the eunuchs, of course, he's concerned because Nebuchadnezzar has told him, you will do this, and his head's on the line. Not uncommon in this day for people who disobeyed the king to just get killed, and somebody else moved into their place. So the chief of the eunuchs, he really has some issues here about whether he should listen to Daniel or whether he should listen to the king. There's really no reason to listen to Daniel, but the Lord provides Daniel with this opportunity. Um, also, oh, I, I forgot to mention this, the food of the Babylonians, the, their meat and such, was offered to idols, which was, again, forbidden for um, the Israelites to eat once it was given to an idol. So, after ten days, of course, they were tested. Daniel and his friends, they looked much, much better than what the, the rest of the people did, so they were allowed to stay on their diet, and the chief of the eunuchs, of course, was allowed to keep his head. <clears throat> At the end of a three-year period, uh, Daniel and his friends, after their education and everything that had been given to them, they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar to be tested to see how well that they had turned out, basically to see what role they were going to have in, in this empire. And it says here that uh, Daniel 1, 18 through 21, it says, When they were presented to the king, Daniel and his friends were found to be ten times better than any other wise man in the land. So they were ten times smarter, wiser, everything just better all around than everyone else in the land. It's going to cause a little bit of jealousy, I'm sure. But uh, that was God's blessing. Now Daniel, Daniel, of course, it tells us right here at the end, uh, Daniel was uh, made basically a, a head over uh, the providence of Babylon. Uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were made uh, basically overseers over the city of Babylon as well. So, I mean, they were all given great positions. It tells us that Daniel was also able to interpret dreams. And that, that's important in our next section because we talk about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Let's look at Daniel 2, 2 through 6. Right, let's take a look at that here. <clears throat> it says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to the king to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word came for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall <clears throat> receive gifts from me, uh, receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So the king has quite the, the trap going on here. Well, there's a couple of reasons why, why this is going on. First off, the king had a dream. He remembers what the dream is, knows what the dream is. Uh, some commentaries say he has forgotten. That's why he wants uh, the, his uh, people to, to tell him what it is. Um, other commentaries say that he is basically testing his, his wise men here. Because you remember these wise men, what are they? It, it talks about enchanters, sorcerers, magicians, Chaldeans. These wise men were supposed to be in concert or, or in tune with the gods. They were supposed to be the messenger of the gods. So, you know, that that's what they were proclaiming to be. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he's come to power. He may not trust these people. You know, they've been in power previously. You know, with the the previous king, they may be plotting against him. So, uh, you know, he's trying to determine one whether they are actually in communion with the gods, or two, you know, maybe he just thinks that they're all disloyal and he wants an excuse to get rid of them. And by asking them to tell him them, tell him his dream, he's basically leaving them no wiggle room. If you are in communion with the gods and you are supposed to be here, then fine. If not. Well, you're obviously lying to me, and I'm going to kill you. And that's basically what he tells him here. Uh, a, a note here, you know, I, I read out of the English Standard Version. It says, your houses will be laid to ruin. King James Version has it a little bit different. It says, your, your houses will be made into dunghills. And now that translation is a little bit more descriptive. In this time, there was, uh, there was basically exactly what would happen the whoever you know the magician the chanter whatever they would be killed their family would likely be killed as well their houses would be burned down and then it would basically be turned into a, a public restroom you might as well say they, literally it would be a dung hill uh, so that is literally what is going on here it would be turned into a dung hill it's kind of a, a sign of, of disrespect and you know kind of a shrine to other people. It's like, this could happen to you and your family. So, 
be on your guard and be loyal. So, <clears throat> when the wise man wise men came back and said, "Oh Lord, you know, my Lord, just just tell me your, your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation." These people were really good at giving interpretations, as bad as their interpretations would be. They had volumes and volumes and volumes of books about how to interpret dreams. They would you know, talk to people, figure out what their dreams were, and then record what happened to them in their life to kind of match up their dreams and what happened uh, accordingly. So, I mean, that's what they were supposed to be skilled at, was figuring out what happened in a dream, interpreting in the future from that. The problem is, of course, that they needed to know what happened in the dream. And even then, of course, their predictions of the future were you know, guesses at best. But, I mean, they really felt like they had this down to a science. But if they don't have a dream to interpret, then they have some problems. So, when Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell them the dream, they couldn't tell him the interpretation, and Nebuchadnezzar ordered all of the wise men in the land killed. Because obviously they were lying to him because they were not in communion with the gods. So, the king sent out his chief executioner, says the, the chief of his guard, his chief executioner. His name was Arioch. He was supposed to go around and kill all the wise men. Now, Arioch, he came to Daniel and was getting ready to kill him. And Daniel said, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know, why, why are you killing everybody? And Arioch, instead of just killing Daniel, there must have been something about Daniel that he was able to talk to people and get him to trust him. Because Arioch, instead of killing him immediately, just he tells him, well, this is what the king said, this is what we're doing. So Daniel says, okay, take me before Nebuchadnezzar, I'll get this all straightened out. Because Daniel was not present at that initial meeting. Whether it was because he was off doing something else, or whether it was because he was kind of young in his uh, appointment or, or whatever, there doesn't really say why he wasn't there, we just know that he was not there. Arioch brings him back before Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, give me a day. Let me, go, let me go home, let me pray about it, and we'll figure this out. Nebuchadnezzar sends him away. So Daniel, he goes home with, uh, and he's with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say, and Daniel says, okay, we need to seek God's guidance in this, figure out what's going to happen, you know, what, what the king's dream was and what's going to happen here, otherwise we're all dead. So, they spend the night praying, and an angel reveals both the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. Daniel goes back before Nebuchadnezzar, tells him the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is satisfied and ends up promoting Daniel. Um, the dream itself, um, without getting too much into it, it was basically a, a vision of the future. Nebuchadnezzar was lying on his bed thinking about what would happen in the future, and the Lord revealed to him what would happen in the future. It talked about um, four great empires, Babylon, Persia, um, Greece, and Rome. Of course, Babylon was the empire that was currently reigning. Persia would take over after Babylon. Greece would conquer after Persia. And then the Roman Empire, of course, would conquer after that. There's also a kind of alludes to a, a fifth empire that would rise out of the fourth, uh, and that's why where you get the, the people talking about the revived Roman Empire. That's from Daniel's vision here. 
So Daniel was able to interpret the dream for the king. The king was greatly impressed because Daniel was able to do it. And obviously, Daniel is someone that is well-skilled here. So we move on. Nebuchadnezzar, in his great wisdom, decides even after Daniel was telling him that there is a God in heaven and that he has revealed this dream to you, and that Daniel's basically you know, evangelizing Nebuchadnezzar here, Nebuchadnezzar still is following the, his own gods. So what he does is he decides he wants to build a statue. Now, he builds a 90-foot tall statue. Most commentators are, you know, think that this is basically the statue from his dream, that he's trying, you know, he felt like this was a, an image from his dream and he was building a statue for people to worship because this was his great revelation. Um, statue was 90 feet tall probably had a wooden frame with something over it and then it was inlaid or overlaid in gold so gold plated um, not solid gold because well that would be ridiculous uh, not to mention the cost of that it would be a lot very hard to manipulate and build and such because gold's really heavy um, now we're not certain whether the entire statue whether the statue of the man was 90 feet tall or whether he had a platform up and then you know, there was a statue of a man on top that was you know six or seven or ten or whatever feet tall. But it, I mean, it just says here the statue, the idol itself, was 90 feet tall. So uh, the point was that they built this statue, they gathered all of the, the rulers around <clears throat> and said, when you hear the sound of the music playing, because they're going to you know, strike up a band and, you know, uh, play music before this idol. When you hear the sound of the music, everybody is supposed to bow down and worship this idol. Uh, the penalty for not worshiping the idol was you were to be thrown in a fiery furnace. Now the fiery furnace that it talks about here is likely some type of a kennel. kennel, kennel. Yeah, get that word out. Kennel. Um, you remember they just built this huge idol. So there was probably on site some type of a, a blast furnace or a kennel there that would uh, they used to make the bricks now a uh, blast furnace like that would likely get up to about 800 degrees Fahrenheit pretty hot so getting thrown in there you know, it was no joke there, you really had no chance of surviving you get thrown in there and you pretty much just die instantly so music started playing and well let's look what happened well I guess here, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said that we're not going to bow down before the idol. And that's recorded in Daniel 3.16. So let's take a look at that. So they wouldn't bow down before the idol. And they were brought before the king. And the king asked them, it's like, why did you not bow down before the idol? Uh, if you don't do it immediately... Actually, let's look here at verse 15. It says, uh, Bible always puts things a lot better than I can paraphrase it. So we'll just read here, verse 15 through 17. It says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship... 
you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fi burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Which God indeed. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, firing furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve you, or not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Again, we run into a, an issue where the command of the king is going against what the word of God says. So against, you know, against what they've learned in the, in the Pentateuch, you know, don't serve another god. I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, our god is a jealous god. That's what they're looking at here. It's like, we cannot serve another god. You know, <laughs> the interpretation here, depending on the version that you look at, says, well, it's easy for us to answer you in this matter. Uh, basically, they have no problem telling the king exactly what they think. King says, who's going to rescue you out of my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thinking, well, our God, Yahweh, he will rescue us if he deems it necessary to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve God. We're not going to bow down to this idol. So what happens? The king has them bound, and they get thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, now it says the temperature for the fiery furnace was, I think, increased seven times, uh, yeah, seven times more than it was usually heated. So, I mean, it was very, very intense heat. The people that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, they, they died. When they got close to the furnace, they just died. So you can imagine the kind of heat intensities going on here. Yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown in. Nothing happens to them. As a matter of fact, has the king sitting there, looking in, and he sees you know, them unbound inside the furnace, standing up. What does it say here? It's uh, in Daniel 3, 24. Doo -doo -doo. My computer wasn't lagging. This would be a lot better. There we are. Okay. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So, here we are, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're standing up, walking around in a furnace that is you know, probably at least 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. They should have been killed instantly, but here they are just up and walking around in this furnace. And there is a fourth man in that furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, he looks like a son of the gods. Now the King James Version, I believe, I think that's the one, has it, it looks like the son of God. Well, that's not an accurate interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar had no concept of Christ or the Messiah or, you know, of you know Jesus coming. He was more referring to his gods. It looks like you know 
looks like a son of the gods, one of his gods. He had no concept of, of what was actually going on here. Two possibilities here. One, could have been an angel in there. Angel came, saved them, you know, no problem. Two, we could have an issue of a pre-incarnate Christophany. And what that is, that is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. So it literally could be that Christ was in there with them. So most uh, commentators believe that. I myself believe that that is the case, that it is a pre-incarnate Christophany. Um, now the king, he calls into the fires, like, are you guys all right? You, what, come out here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they walk out. They're unbound, completely fine. says there's not even the smell of smoke on them. Now that's impressive. I mean, you get anywhere close to a fire and you, you smell of smoke. Here they are standing in the middle of a fire, and they don't even smell like smoke. So the angel had them completely protected at all times from everything. They came out of the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar basically said, All right, we will promote you. So they were loyal to the king. They would do what he, the king wanted them to do. I mean, they had no problem going into the fiery furnace. They just weren't going to bow down before the idol. When you see that kind of resolve in somebody, that's a trustworthy person right there. And I think the king recognized that, and that's why he promoted them in the kingdom. So, we're on to the fall of Babylon. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, he reigned, what, from 605, I think is when he started his reign. He died in uh, 562 B.C., a lot of things happened in there that we're just not going to cover. So, a couple kings took power after Nebuchadnezzar. Their kings, uh, kingdoms were really short-lived. In 556, a man by the name of uh, Nab uh, Nabonidus was made king. Uh, most commentaries will say that he was not part of the kingly line. So he adopted the king's son, or grandson. We're really not sure of that either. Uh, the, the guy's name was Belshazzar. We're not sure whether he was Nebuchadnezzar's son or his grandson. Because in Hebrew, there's really no word for grandfather. It is just father. And we see that a lot of times in the New Testament when it's going through the genealogies. It'll you know, talk about this person was the father of, you know, David was the father of the Messiah, the father of Jesus. Um, Jesus, of course, was the son of David doesn't mean it was literally his son. It just means in the line, he was in the line of David. So, um, we're not sure here whether it was Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson. But regardless, uh, Nabonidus adopted him to be, you know, to have some type of legitimacy. Now, Nabonidus, he lived outside of Babylon, the city of Babylon. It says he lived out in the Arabian Desert somewhere. Uh, and uh, Belshazzar actually ruled in Babylon. They were co-regents, so they both equally had the power. Now, in 539, Nabonidus, he was captured in the Arabian Desert by the Persians. So he was, you know, captured and destroyed. And at that point, uh, the Medes and the Persians turned their eyes toward Babylon and started to attack the city. Uh, said they uh, laid siege to it for two to four months. 
So during this time, the city's under siege, being attacked, and Babylonians really don't have anything to, to do about it. Um, Belshazzar, he decides he wants to throw a party, have a feast for all the lords in the, in the kingdom. Now this is real smart. I mean, they're already under siege, which means no food is coming in or out. But yet the, the lords of the, the city are having this huge feast and wasting all this food and you can imagine all the stuff that was going on in this pagan society in, in the feast. I mean, it was uh, not a godly affair, that's for certain. So, it says in Daniel 5, 3 through 4, I'll just read it here off my study guide, it says, <clears throat> during this uh, feast that they had, said, So they brought in the, in the vessels of gold and silver, silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. A lot of blasphemy going on here. First off, the items that they were drinking from were the holy items from the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, this stuff belonged to God. It's something you don't want to do is blaspheme against God. Well, first off, they decide to eat from and drink out of you know these vessels that's bad enough to follow that up they took the blasphemy even further by worshiping the god of gold and silver and iron and wood and and who knows what else you know in bronze here uh, you know they were worshiping other gods in place of the one true god we do stuff like this especially in the old testament god takes note of that and he acts immediately. And it says here, immediately when they were done doing that, a hand appeared of human fingers, hand of God, and wrote on the wall a message. Now nobody in the uh, that was there could read the message. Uh, the king said, "Let's see." The king said. Uh, the king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and rank third in the kingdom. So it's basically Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then this new guy. He'd be third rank in the kingdom. Now none of the... You, you can imagine how much people at that point wanted to be able to read this here. Because, I mean, they would be promoted in the kingdom. But no one could read it. But the queen remembered a man who was able to do that. She remembered Daniel. Daniel was likely just retired and out of the picture at this time. Probably just faded away. I mean, he was probably, you know, in his late 80s at this time. Early to, to late 80s. Uh, the queen remembers Daniel and, and calls him in. And, of course, the king tells Daniel about all the gifts that he will give him if he was able to, to read this um, writing on the wall. And Daniel says, King, you can keep your gifts. However, I'll give you the interpretation anyway. This is kind of a, you know, showing that Daniel can't be bought. He's a servant of God. He does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He can't be bought. So it doesn't matter what you give him. I mean, he's, you know, he is loyal to God. So, Daniel reads the words, and the words are, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And what that means is, 
Mine means your days are numbered, and that's repeated twice. Tekel means weighed and found too light. So you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, basically. Uh, parson and Perez, those are the uh, same root word, and it means to divide. Parson, being the plural, could have a significance of the Babylonian kingdom, uh, dividing the Babylonian kingdom by the Persians. Um, another interpretation is that the kingdom would be destroyed and broken into countless parts. So basically, uh, your days are numbered. You've been found wanting. Your kingdom will be destroyed. That was the prophecy here that Daniel had given. Of course, the king, he was true to his word. Even though Daniel said that he did not want it, uh, the king made him third over the nation. But Babylon, however, fell um, in October of 539. So that same year uh, fell to the Persians. It was taken over by um, Cyrus. Now, Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would do that. But it talks here about uh, Darius actually coming in and you know taking over Babylon. So there's a little bit of a... It doesn't quite match up with the prophecy and, and who actually took it over. Now, what could have been is Darius might have just been a title. And it could have been Darius was the title and Cyrus was actually the king there. There's a couple ways to get around that, um, but Darius, generally uh, speaking, when you're looking at the Old Testament, Darius and Cyrus are the same person. So, Darius comes in, or Cyrus he comes in, he wants to appoint people over different provinces in this newly conquered uh, area of Babylon. He wants to put three people over, you know, basically a president over all the satraps. And the person that he wants to appoint over everyone is Daniel. Uh, it says Daniel 6, 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and read that real quick. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this, <clears throat> then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. So, Daniel was going to be put over everyone. Well, the rest of the satraps didn't like that. You know, Daniel, though he was the, the wisest and the best of all of them, they all had their own aspirations of being in charge. And they wanted to get rid of Daniel. Because Daniel was one of these people that he was too good to be true. There was no corruption in him. There was no dirt on him. You couldn't blackmail him. He always did what was right and just and lawful. There was no working with Daniel to further their own means because Daniel always did what was right. They didn't like that. You know, when you have a lot of crooked people in an administration, they don't like the honest people because the honest people call them out. So, 
they tried to find some dirt on Daniel, couldn't do it, and they decided the only way to get rid of Daniel was to drum up some false charges, or drum up some charges that they knew that would entrap him. So these satraps, they go before Darius and say, King, we like you. And what we'd like is that you would declare for the next 30 days that no one is able to worship any other idol or god except you because you're such a great guy. And Darius, well, he was okay with that. This is not a foreign idea in, in this time in history. Um, they, the idea of a god in those days was much different than the Christian concept of god. We think of our god as being transcendent and above everything on, on the mortal plane, really. I mean, he is above everything. He is outside of time. He is in eternity. So he is transcendent above everything and not affected at all by his creation, though he's imminent in the fact that he is everywhere throughout his creation. So we think of God as being perfect and pure and holy. They don't. They think of the gods as being like men. They're immortal, but they're still fallible and you know easily corrupted. So the fact that you know people want to worship Darius, he has no problem with that because his concept of God is God. Yeah, that could be me too. You remember Caesar? He was also worshipped as a god. So this this concept it's it's pretty uh, established in this day. Now the trick here is that the satraps want Darius to sign this into law. And the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be rescinded once it was signed into law. So once it was actually signed into law, no one could, could change that. So, um, it says in Daniel 6.10, Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room, open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day and to pray to his God and to praise him just as he had done previously. So Daniel, even though he knew it was against the law, again we have an issue here where Daniel knows it's against the law, but he has to do what's right in the sight of God. So he continues to worship God. The satraps see that, they entrap Daniel, and they go and tell the king, King, this is what Daniel's doing. Further, even after them telling the king, they go back to the king later that night to make sure that the king is going to punish Daniel. Say, King, you remember this is against the law. You know, you need to punish Daniel. What do you think uh, Darius thought of that? You know, they told him, you know, first off, they entrap him. He knows that they entrapped him to do this. And now they're coming back and saying, King, you have to do this because it's now part of the law. Probably not something you want to do to the king is to rub it in his face. We'll see that a little later. So Darius' hands are tied. He doesn't want to do anything to Daniel. Maybe he wanted to promote Daniel over everyone. But his hands are tied now because of the law of the Medes and the Persians. So it says Daniel was thrown into the den of lions. Now I know they say lion's den, Daniel in the lion's den. That's what you learn in, in Bible school or in uh, Sunday school. That is right, but it is more accurately translated as den of lions. Because think about this. A lion's den, that could mean anything. That could just be a cave where a lion once lived. It was the lion's den. 
doesn't necessarily have to have a lion in it. But a den of lions means there are actually lions in that den. <clears throat> so some commentators will say that Darius will, uh, <clears throat> he threw Daniel into this uh, lion's den. Didn't really have any lions in it. They just did that to, you know, accommodate uh, the law. No, the, the interpretation of Daniel, if you read down through it, this den was full of lions. He threw him down there. It was full of lions. Darius really didn't expect him to live. He told D Daniel before he went down, May your God, who you serve, protect you. Toss Daniel's down. Daniel down into the lion's den. Now Daniel 6.18 says, Then the king went back to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him and sleep fret fled from him. The king was distraught over this. He did not want to do this. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't sleep. Uh, said he fasted all night. And the king hastily returned the next day to check on Daniel. Uh, because part of the law of the Medes and the Persians, you know, part of the punishment here was if you survive the night, you were free to go. So the king hastily returns back to the den of lions and calls down to Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel says in Daniel 6.22, My God sent his angel and shut up the mouth of the lions so that they would not hurt me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no wrong. I can imagine Daniel just sitting down there on you know, some concrete floor just, just waiting for, for someone to come by. It's like, oh yeah. Yeah, Angel came by as soon as he tossed me in here. Shut up the mouth of the lions. I've been patting them all night. They're, they're actually pretty good kitties. <laughs> um, so, that, you know, that that's what happened. Um, Daniel, he was brought out. He didn't even have a scratch on him. So, uh, it says, Those who accused Daniel were thrown into the lion's den along with their entire family. So the king... After he brought Daniel out of the tomb or out of the, the lion's den, now he was mad. So he knew that you know God had intervened on Daniel's behalf, that Daniel had been saved, and now he has to deal with all these other people that tricked him. Well, he really doesn't need a law that says he you know can't kill them. He's the king; he can kill anybody he wants to. Now he knows that these other people have tricked him, so he throws them and their families into the same den of lions that he just pulled Daniel out of. And the Bible records the lions overcame them and broke all of their bones and killed them all. So, very interesting situation that Daniel was saved from. Daniel 6, 26 uh, through 7 sums up what uh, happened afterwards. It says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never, uh, shall, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. You can't sum it up any better than that. God is God, and he'll rule until the end. So that's where Darius left off. Short little thing here uh, before we finish off. One thing that Daniel did as well. 
he gave us a, a pattern for prayer. And this is this happens in Daniel 9, uh, 4 through 19. We're not going to read that. Um, if you do want to, go ahead and look that up. This is basically where Daniel comes before God and is pleading. It's been 70 years, Lord. You promised 70 years of captivity, and then we can go home. Please send us home. That's you know that was Daniel's prayer. The thing is, is how he set up this prayer. It's really a pattern for prayer that is repeated in the New Testament. So Daniel's pattern for prayer was first the exaltation of God. You address God. I mean, when you address God, you basically you know you sing His accolades. You give Him praises. He's the you know He's our God. He's our Creator. He's you know the ruler and master over everything. I mean, you give God the praise that that He is due. Second thing is, you repent or confess your sins. I mean, you're coming before a most holy God. He knows everything that you've done. You humble yourself before your, before your God. And the third thing is, after you've given him praise and you've humbled yourself, give, you know, confessed your sins and repented, then you give your request. Well, who else had that same pattern for prayer? Jesus had that same pattern for prayer. When they asked him how he was supposed to pray, or how they were supposed to pray, this is how he said to do it. He said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is that? That prayer starts off exalting God, giving praise to God, who is, you know, his name is, you know, hallowed be thy name. Second thing is repentance and confession. Humbling yourself. Uh, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive, uh, as we have forgiven those, uh, uh, forgiven our debtors. Sorry, I have multiple translations here. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Whatever translation you really want to use there, the idea is you're asking for forgiveness. And then finally, the request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Same pattern for prayer that Daniel set up. It's the same pattern for prayer that Jesus said to do. We have correlation there. Daniel kind of set it up. He knew what, you know, how to pray. And Jesus, you know, comes along and he says, this is how you pray. And basically the same pattern that Daniel had, Jesus has as well. It's just great. So what stories do we have here, or what uh, lessons do we have here from the story? First off, God uses those who are loyal to him. Daniel was loyal to God. He didn't want to eat the food that was provided to him. He didn't want to, well, when the order came down that he was to not worship God and worship Darius, and said he, he denied that said, I'm going to worship God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't bow down before the idol. They said that they would only serve God. And what happened? God blessed them because of that. God raised them up and put them into positions to where they would be useful in God's plan. That's a, that's a good lesson here. You do what God tells you to do, and you stay true to his word and his will, and he'll raise you up. You do that with a humble heart, with you know God's intentions, you know God's will in mind, and you're not seeking glory after yourself, you're doing it in service of your Lord. God will raise you up. 
Second thing here is in life sometimes we have circumstances that come up that promise to, to give us money, power, wealth, pleasure, whatever. Sometimes that those are good things. Other times you have to compromise your values, compromise what the word of the Lord says is true and right in order to obtain those goals. When you do that, those things are kind of fleeting and they, they don't give you the satisfaction because they're not fulfilling. This, it's not from God. If you have to sin to obtain something, then you're really certain that it wasn't for God because God wouldn't have you sin in order to do something, in, in order to do His will. Instead, you stay true to what God wants you to do. Daniel's case, he kept the dietary laws that he was supposed to. He didn't worship Darius. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't worship you know, that false idol. They kept true to what God had them, you know, wanted them to do. And because of that, they were lifted up and God used them. So, in your life, your, in your daily life, if you see opportunities that may bring you some type of a, you know, satisfaction or, or whatever, but you're going to have to sin in order to get there, a Christian should outright deny that. Just say, nope, that's not for me. It's obviously not from God. It's, it's you know, nothing I want any part of. And in the long run, that'll be better off for you. And that's where we're going to end this week. Daniel is a great book. You should go read that. I'm very happy to be teaching through that. So, it looks like the, the next week uh, we're going to be looking at what the children of Israel did when they returned from exile. So, should be a, a good week. Um, hopefully, you'll uh, come back and join us then. But until then, uh, hopefully you're, you're reading along with this. Go ahead and, like I said, read about uh, the return from Babylon. And we'll meet you back here next week, and we'll continue studying, studying God's Word. So until then, God bless you all, and come back soon.